You may be seated. Open your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 1. Now, I'm going to tell you up front that I preached this message in December of 2018, and I am very confident that none of you remember it. <laughs> so it's okay. And if you have, if you're one of the few who keep all of your sermon notes filled out and in some kind of an order, if you scroll back, you're going to find this, so I, I don't want you to think I'm trying to pull a fast one on you. But we've been talking about prayer over the last couple of weeks, and there are so many prayers within the Bible that are worthy of our study, and I have gone through these before, not all of them, but a few of them through the prayers of Paul. And so as we look in Colossians today, we're looking at praying God's will. And just as a way of reminder, a way of connection to what we've talked about and looked at, so far as we've examined this idea of prayer, which is somewhat based upon the book that you were encouraged to pick up and read. And by the way, there's still one copy out there if you've not yet gotten one. And so we looked at Matthew chapter 6 about what Jesus taught his disciples to pray. And what is contained in Matthew 6 is often called the Lord's Prayer, but really is Jesus teaching us how to pray. And so it is rightly... It is rightly understood to be the disciples' prayer. And in this, we are instructed to pray to the Father, the one who is in heaven, our spiritual Father, the one to whom we owe our salvation, and yes, even our very lives. But we are to pray to Him remembering that we have this distinct privilege of talking to the Creator of the universe, not as an impersonal divine being, but as a Father who loves us and cares for us, and wants to be real in our lives. Do you understand that? God wants to have a viable impact in each of our lives, not as a God who gets His way, but as a Father who loves us and wants what's best for us and desires to use us in His kingdom's work. Secondly, we looked at the purpose of prayer, and that is to make His name holy, or to glorify His name in this world that we live in, and we do that as He does His work through us, and as we live lives in obedience to Him. We looked at the plan of prayer, and that is to pray for His kingdom to come, for His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Imagine if God's will was done on earth as it is in heaven. What a different world this would be, wouldn't it? We wouldn't see the crime. We wouldn't see the harsh realities of human nature and the power and the presence of an unconquerable sin being lived out in the lives of unregenerate individuals. But we would see heaven on earth. We would see God's purposes and plans lived out perfectly as we look forward to that in the days of days ahead as we pray for his kingdom to come for God to reestablish heaven on earth and for us to enjoy our absolutely recreated perfected bodies that will know no pain no no suffering will only understand and experience the glory and the presence of the Lord we looked at the petition for prayer and that is our daily needs our daily forgiveness and our daily deliverance from the power and the presence of evil and the evil one who seeks to lead us astray. Now we also looked at the practice of prayer 
And we looked at this in Mark chapter 14 as Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and very consistently prayed Himself in a similar fashion to the way He taught His disciples to pray. Jesus followed His own teaching by praying to the Father that the Father's name would be glorified through the Son, that the Father's will would be done on earth. He prayed that He would be protected from the evil one who desires to distract and distort the plans and purposes of God. And Satan wanted nothing other than Jesus to not go to the cross. But Jesus did go to the cross because he understood that that was the only way that God's eternal plan of redemption could be fulfilled. And so this is what Jesus was steadfast to doing, the Father's will. So in our passage today, Paul is going to teach us about prayer in a very indirect way. And he's going to teach us how to pray as he prays for the church at Colossae. And I believe that if we were to duplicate the prayer that we're going to hear Paul pray, if we were to duplicate that in our very lives, we would undoubtedly see God at work in a very real and a very tangible way. In these four short verses, I believe that Paul is teaching us what we should be praying about for ourselves and for our church. Let's look together in Colossians chapter 1. And we'll be focusing on verses 9 through 12. Here's what we read in God's Word. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, that is, of their salvation, we have not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. We're going to look at this divided up into two main points. The first one is this, the request that Paul makes. The prayer that Paul is going to pray centers around the primary topic of our ability to know God's will. Paul's prayer is centered on the fact that we would know God's will. Look again at verse 9. For this reason also, because of your salvation, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be all, excuse me, that you may be filled with the with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So what Paul is praying about is our ability to understand God's will, and it is centered on two key words. The first one is this. It is the word filled, and that means to be filled to completeness. It means to be controlled by. We are to be filled with an understanding of God's will in such a way that we are absolutely and completely controlled by it. You know, a woman who is in her 39th week of pregnancy is filled to completeness with that baby that is ready to be born. And she is absolutely dominated by the presence of this unborn baby that is ready to come out. You see it affect the way she walks, the way she sits, the way she eats, the way she breathes. It absolutely affects everything about her life. Now guys, we can't really identify with that very well personally, but think about your last great Thanksgiving feast where you were filled to completeness, 
filled to the full and affected the way you stood and the way you sat and the way you breathed. You know what that feels like, right? I can't eat another bite, but I'm going to try because it's so good. Well, this is the idea that we would be filled to completeness with the knowledge of God's will in such a way that we would be absolutely and totally controlled by it. The second key word is knowledge. Filled with a full and deep understanding of what God's will for us. Knowledge which grasps and penetrates deep into the object's Excuse me, deep into the object. The idea is the knowledge of His will would saturate the entirety of our life. Everything we think about is filtered through His will. Every value and priority that we hold high is filtered through His will. Every desire of our heart is to be filtered through His will. Every decision that we make is to be filtered through His will. Our knowledge of, our understanding of, His will is to thoroughly affect our thoughts, our affections, our purposes, our plans, our desires, everything about us. There are many competing interests for what we accept as truth in this world. Because face it, What we believe to be true is going to affect our lives. Isn't that right? If you believe that you are to do a certain thing or to buy a certain thing or go to a certain place and it's going to have a profoundly positive impact on your life, you are very likely going to give yourself over to that truth. But the reality is there is a singular absolute truth and that absolute truth is God's Word. But there are many, many things out there that compete for our understanding of and our agreement with what is this absolute truth. There is the Word versus the culture. There is a biblical worldview versus a worldly philosophy. There is the, the idea of what our parents think and what we believe to be true. There is a competing interest with what our friends say and do and with what we decide to do. So we have this constant battle in our lives over what is truth because what we believe to be true is going to have an impact on how we live our lives. So if we accept many, many equal truths in our life, what will that do in affecting our full knowledge and understanding of the will of God? If it isn't just the standard of God's Word, what else will we raise to have an equal footing with God's Word? Because if we believe as the people of God that God's Word is to have a unique and a prioritized position in our life, then what other people, other things, other entities say are to be secondary to what we know to be true about God's Word. So God wants us to know His complete will for our lives. Now, letter A in our understanding of this is the Bible tells us of His general will. These are contained in the basic commands of Scripture and they define, letter I, our relationship with Him as His children. The place His Word is to have in our lives. His desire to commune with us in prayer. 
our need to submit ourselves under His Lordship. Our express commitment to do what He wants us to do. So we have a very good understanding of the general will of God. Unfortunately, our understanding of that will can be tainted by what we believe to be truthful in our lives. This is why there's this constant battle that takes place. Secondly, this general will is expressed in our obedience to Him. We are to follow Him. We are to imitate Him. We are to do what He says. We are to live how He says. We are to love like He loves. And so we have a very decent idea about what the general will of God is. We're going to talk about that more in just a moment. But let her be we get distracted by what His specific will for our lives is. Yeah, I know God loves me, and I know God wants me to do these things, and I know God wants me to forsake these things, but I want to know the particulars. I want to know about the job I'm supposed to have. I want to know about the person I'm supposed to marry. I want to know about the kind of career I'm going to have, or the school I'm going to go to, or the investment that I need to make, or when I'm supposed to have kids. We want to know all the details with an indifference towards the general will of how we are to live our lives based upon who God is and what God has done for us. And in many respects, it puts the cart before the horse. How can we know the specifics of what God wants us to do if we are indifferent towards the general will that God has for us as His children? What we need to understand is this, letter C. The specific understanding of God's will comes out of obedience to the general will of God that we know. Now, we are increasing in our knowledge of our understanding of the will of God as we read His Word, as we obey His Word, as we submit to His Word. But how do we gain this knowledge of His will? Well, verse 9 explains this for us, and it says in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now you will note that Paul makes the distinction of spiritual wisdom and spiritual understanding, meaning this is not an academic process. It is a spiritual one. You see, when we approach the Word of God as an academic study, we totally miss what God is saying, and why He is saying it. When we read the Word of God, apart from this spiritual understanding and this spiritual wisdom, the Word of God becomes little more than rules and regulations, do's and don'ts, things that this divine entity has established that I believe are going to take fun out of my life, and I don't really like that very much. In this spiritual wisdom, in this spiritual understanding, it is centered around the Holy Spirit as the one who teaches, as the one who motivates, as the one who encourages, as the one who enables us to discover to completeness what is the will of God for me. Spiritual wisdom and spiritual understanding are synonymous terms with a slightly different emphasis. And so spiritual wisdom is knowing what is right. How do we know what is right? Well, the Holy Spirit illuminates the truth of God's Word in our hearts, and it enables us to know. 
So the question is, what is right or what is truth? We believe that truth is absolute, meaning that it never ever changes. What was true, as it came from the heart of God, from the mouth of God, to the individuals who were inspired to write these words of God, that truth has not changed because we now live in this very modern and very technological world in 2021. It is just as true as the moment it was inspired as it is today. It never ever changes because God is the one who determines this truth. Folks, here is the challenge that we have in our lives, as I alluded to earlier. If you and I don't believe that God's Word is absolute truth, not that it contains it, but that it is absolute truth, if we don't really and truly believe that, in the very depth of our hearts, then what that means is something else is going to be equally true, or perhaps even more truthful than God's Word. So if that is our position, you can begin to selectively rip the pages out of your Bible and you become the judge of what is and is not absolute truth. Well, that's not really what I'm saying, but in effect, that's exactly what you're doing. Well, I believe that God's Word means something different today than what it meant when it was written in the first century Christianity. Well, that's an issue you have That's not an issue God has. If you take an author, a pastor, a teacher, a prophet, any individual, and you elevate their words to be equally true to the Word of God, you are on a dangerously slippery slope that will lead you astray because you will set aside the absolute truth of God's Word for something else. Well, we could talk for a long time about, well, how do we know that God's Word is true? And I could tell you about all the ancient manuscripts, and I could tell you about all the consistency that exists with the earliest ever discovered manuscripts, and how they are 99% consistent with what we have in our Bible, and the differences are so insignificant that there really isn't an issue with it. I can talk to you about how the things that have been prophesied in the Bible have come to be true. I can tell you about other writings who have made prophetic utterances and they have not been true in fact they have actually been proven to be false and we could go on and on and on and you would begin to understand with perhaps a greater clarity that God's word is more reliable than maybe you thought it was it is more trustworthy than maybe you were told it was because I want to tell you this it originated in the heart of God and God has the ability to protect the truthfulness and the accuracy of his word because with a single spoken word everything that we see, everything that we experience has come into being. If my God can do that, then my God can preserve His Word through all of the sinfulness of the culture, through all the sands of time, and we can believe in our heart that it is true because He is God. And He said, my words will never fall away. Not one utterance, not one dot, not one cross will ever diminish the truthfulness and the accuracy of my Word. If you don't want to believe that, then you stand on very, very shaky ground. And everything that you believe in is going to be like on sifting sand. So we have 
this idea that God's Word is absolute truth, never ever to be changing. He's the one who determines it. And so spiritual understanding, excuse me, spiritualism is based upon what is truth, and spiritual understanding is doing what is right. Knowing what is right and doing what is right are two sides of the same coin. If you don't know what is right, how can you do what is right? You know, we have this thing in our world, and it's been in existence for a long, long time, and it's called situational ethics. Well, I know you say that's true, but you don't understand my circumstance. You see, if I don't go out and steal, I won't eat. If I don't go out and kill, I might be killed. If I don't go out and destroy, I might be destroyed. And so whenever we decide that truth is relevant to our experience, we've totally disregarded the absolute truthfulness of God's Word. God's Word is truth independent of our personal circumstance. God's Word is truth regardless of what we believe is or is not true. And oh, by the way, you and I will be judged by the truth that God has established, not our understanding and not our belief. We don't live according to the ways of the world. We are not to live according to what is popular in the culture. We're not to live according to the desires of the self, but we are to live according to the truth of God's Word. When we know what is right, then we will do what is right. Knowing what is right, doing what is right, is what enables us to know the will of God to completeness. So that we don't scratch our heads and go, gee, I wonder if, I wonder if this is what God wants me to do today. We know because it is discerned spiritually through the Holy Spirit who indwells God's children and He illuminates it and encourages it and empowers it through the Holy Spirit. Number two, in the major outline that we have, is the result of the knowing of God's will. The result of a full knowledge of His will, the expression of this knowledge flowing from our lives is this. It is a worthy life. When you and I have a full and complete understanding of the will of God and we are doing what God has called us to do, then we will do what Paul has prayed that the church at Colossae would do, verse 10, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects. This word worthy is one that we should always Always remember, biblically, that word worthy means equal weight. It means to live a life that is appropriate with what the Lord has done for us and with what the Lord is to us. This word is derived in this culture because when you went to the market and you were to purchase any goods, you would put your gold or your currency on a scale and the seller was to give you an equal weight that was worthy of the price you were paying for it. Now, there were a lot of cheaters in that day and they would take the scales in their balance. But this is where the word comes from. We are to live our lives so that it is equal weight 
of the Lord. Now let me be very honest with you. We can't do that. We cannot live our lives equal to the weight of what God has done for us. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't give our very best effort to it. We can't live a life of perfection. We can't live a life that never strays from what we know to be true or what we know God has told us to do. We can't do that perfectly. But we are to strive towards that so that we can live our lives worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects. Colossians 2.6 says this, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, by grace, through faith, so walk in Him. You know, the reality is we can't live our lives equal to the weight of our salvation, but we live in the grace that God provides because He knows we can't do that. God isn't looking for perfection. He's looking at the desire of our heart. He's looking at the way we faithfully follow Him. He isn't looking for an opportunity to say, you failed, I'm going to smack you again. We live by grace. We live in faith just as we have received Him. Think about it when you came to the Lord. When I came to the Lord... I came broken. I came with a total dependence upon Him. I came with a total surrender to His Lordship. I came with great enthusiasm and I came with great thankfulness because the Lord was willing to save a wretch like me. What He has done, what does He mean when He says that we are to walk in Him in that way, to please Him in every way. It means that we are to anticipate and obey His desires. To walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in every respect, means that we say, God, what would You have me do? God, what would bring glory and honor to You? I want to die to myself I don't want to do what comes naturally to me. I don't want to do what I think that person is deserving of. I want to do what is pleasing to you. I want to do what is in obedience to your word. But folks, there's a huge conflict that we have in pleasing him and in pleasing ourselves or in pleasing other people. In regarding to pleasing him, we read in 2 Corinthians 5 9, therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Is this is this our mantra? Is this our desire? Is this a part of our prayer? Does this express where we are and our relationship with him? That God, wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, whatever circumstance I find myself in, I want to be pleasing to you in regards to living a life that pleases ourselves. Paul would say this in Philippians 1.21, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Far better for me to die than it is for me to live to Christ. I would rather die than to not be able to live my life for Christ. In regards to living our lives so that we can please others, we read in Galatians 1.10. Paul says, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant 
of Christ. If we live our lives desiring to please other people, we have to question where is our highest allegiance to God or to someone or to something else. You know, we live in a culture, we live in a world that if we don't bow down to the pressure of political correctness, if we don't bow down to this idea of tolerance, we will in fact retract ourselves away from what it means to be a child of God. Because you know what? We won't stand for truth. We won't stand for obedience. We won't stand for what brings glory to God. We will stand for fitting in. Get along, right? Getting along so we can go along. It's just ridiculous, but this is the pressure that we live in. Now, this idea here is expressed in four examples. Paul uses four participles to describe a life that is worthy of the Lord to a life that is pleasing to Him. By living a life that is pleasing to Him, we are living according to His will for us in both a general and a specific way. So number one, these four expressions of how we can live this Worthy life or this life that is pleasing to Him. Number one, a life that is bearing fruit. Verse 10, Paul says, bearing fruit in every good work. You know, bearing fruit is a critical component of what it means to be a child of God. Bearing fruit was very central to the prayer that Jesus prayed in John 17 and following as He was preparing His disciples for His departure. And He says, excuse me, in chapter 15 through 17. And so He says this in John 15, 8, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be My disciples. So the expectation is that as God's children, you and I are going to bear fruit. Now authors have popularized five examples of how We can bear fruit, so very, very quickly, letter A, the fruit of character is who I am. Fruit of character, who I am now that I am a child of God. This is expressed in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things. There is no law. But not only is there this fruit of character, There is this fruit of conduct, and that addresses what I do. Not only who I am, but what I do. Philippians 1, 10 and 11. So that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. So there is this transformative work that takes place when we come to know Him, and God changes who we are at our very core, and what was once impossible for us, to know the love of God and to do the love of God, to have the joy that is in Christ and to live that joy out, etc., etc., through the fruit of the Spirit. He now enables us to do those things through the transformative work of the Holy Spirit, and that is expressed in what I do. I do those things that enable me to live a life that is more blameless, a life that is excellent, that is built upon the truth of God's Word and my desire to honor Him and to please Him. Let her see the fruit of communication, what I say. Now, we could diverge from this and talk about what we say for about another 30 minutes because often what we say is inconsistent with who we are 
And it leads us into doing those things that we should not do because of the things that we are saying. Think about the idle words that we speak. Think about the uncontrolled things that we speak. What if everything that we mumbled under our breath was amplified for all to hear? What if the things that we said internally to ourselves was publicly known by all? Oh, the fruit of character in what I say. Hebrews 13:15. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that gives thanks to his name. What we say reveals a lot about who we are. It reveals our values, our priorities, and it exposes the condition of our heart. This is why Jesus said in Matthew 12:34, for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. So if our hearts are filled with praise and thankfulness, it will be reflected in the words that we speak. Letter D, the fruit of contribution, what I give. What we give to his kingdom's work is a byproduct of our walk with him. Philippians 4, 15 through 17. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. Let's pause right there. What do you think was the spiritual condition of the people who made up these churches that said, we don't have anything to give to you. We're not going to support your work in any way, shape, or form. What do you think that said about them? Verse 16, for even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit or the fruit which increases to your account. You see, what we give reflects our walk with the Lord. It's an indication of His working in us. And the idea here that Paul communicates is that our giving produces fruit by the Lord in His kingdom's work. Paul was not overjoyed by the material nature of the gift given to him and the money. He was overjoyed at the spiritual benefit to them. Their giving was evidence of spiritual fruit being produced from them because that is a byproduct of our walk with the Lord. Letter E, the fruit of conversion, who I win. Within this idea of the Great Commission is multiplication. Our salvation is to bring about the salvation and the discipling of other individuals. This is what Paul expressed in Romans 1.13. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far that I, might, that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. Rome, a very unchristian part of the world, and Paul desired to go to his home place so that he would be a part of seeing others converted to Jesus Christ. So God is pleased when our lives bear fruit for him. Number two, a life that is pleasing and worthy of the Lord is a life that is growing. Verse 10, Paul says, increasing in the knowledge of God. It pleases God that we continue to grow. Whenever we are in, excuse me, wherever we are in our knowledge and application of the truth of God's Word, we must grow. If someone just gets saved and understands the 
basic simplicity of the gospel message and never grows from that, how productive will they be in the kingdom of God? How much fruit will they be able to bear in their lives? Think about it like this. A baby that is born into your home is born with great joy and great enthusiasm. That baby is entirely dependent upon the parents. It produces no fruit of any kind, right? It makes no contribution to the household. What does it do? It consumes and it makes a mess. That's what it does. That's all the baby can do. There are so many churches filled with Christians who are little more than baby Christians spiritually and they can't do anything to produce fruit within the kingdom of God. The writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 5, 12-14, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food, i.e. like a baby. For everyone who partakes only of milk, like a baby, is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So you have this idea of our growing spiritually requires us to devour the truth of God's Word, not like a baby who suckles on the bottle, but as a growing, vibrant teenager who just can't eat enough and just constantly is devouring the Word of God. What do you do with a baby that does not grow? Well, you take him to the doctor, right? Something wrong. I'm giving this baby five, six meals a day, and he's not growing. Something's going on. It isn't normal for this baby that is being fed to not grow. Well, growing to the Christian comes by knowing God's Word and by doing the will of God. That's, it's as simple as that. There isn't a magic formula for that. If you want to grow in your knowledge of God, if you want to grow in your understanding of God's Word for you generally and specifically, it takes knowing His Word and doing His Word. Number three, a life that is spiritually strong. Verse 11, listen to this verse. Strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. So there's a triple play here in this word. There is the word strength, there is the word power, and there is the word might. And what Paul is praying is that what God has made available to us through His strength, through His power, and His might, might be realized in such a way that we would have steadfastness and patience in this life. Oh boy. Steadfastness, you know what that is, right? It's endurance. I don't know how many of you were ever endurance athletes, whether you were a runner or a cyclist or something, you trained on, a, on an instrument. Well, to do any of those kinds of things, it takes a lot of steadfastness. I took a year of piano, and my, my college teacher was really pleased with my progress, but there came a point where I couldn't do it anymore, and I did not possess the steadfastness to figure out how two hands can do something on the piano in different time and different rhythm because my tendency was to plunk, plunk, plunk. I could never get them to do two different things at the same time. Didn't have the steadfastness. Didn't have the strength and the power of the might of a musical inclination to be able to do that. 
So thank you, Lorraine. We, we greatly appreciate your ability to do that. And Steve, I can never get my fingers to do things with the strumming because it's the same thing. So we, we thank you for that. So we are in conflict. We are tempted. We are deceived. We are pressed by the trials around us. But we have the Holy Spirit of God who is indwelling us We have the hand of God that is leading us and sustaining us and encouraging us to keep the course because He is our strength and our strength comes from His strength. Our empowerment is not based according, excuse me, our empowerment is not based upon our need. Our empowerment is based upon His glorious might, His supply. How much power, how much might, how much strength does God possess? Infinite. And that is our supply. He gives to us out of His supply, not based on our need, but out of His supply. What an incredible difference that makes. This is why Paul was able to say, as this relates to spiritual things, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know what that means? You can't do it because God will empower you. You can't do it apart from His empowerment. You can't do it in your own strength. You can't do it based upon your own way. You can't do it based upon your own will or desires. It is the joining together of the Holy Spirit and our desires, His empowerment that enables us to do what God has called us to do. His power produces, letter A, endurance. Seeing it through to the very, very end. Seeing us through to the very, very end. His power produces patience. Patience is that idea of a calm and gentle spirit. Think about the last great circumstance you were in. How patient were you? Did you hear the buzzer going off? You're failing. You're not trusting me. You don't believe in me. You are not depending upon me. When we are seeing the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, it produces for us that patience that we don't possess on our own. It pleases God that His strength enables us to steadfastly endure with patience. That's a tough one. Number four. A life that is thankful. Verse 12. Joyously giving thanks to the Father. It is thankfulness for our circumstances. Just like what James would say. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Endurance. I didn't cite that verse. I cited 1 Thessalonians 5.18. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4.6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. Colossians 3.15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. You know, it's easy to be thankful when it's all going great. Right? Job's good, health's good, family's good, life's good. Much, much harder to be thankful when it's not going well. And this is what Christ enables us to do through the work of His Spirit, is to be thankful in our circumstances. Letter B, thankfulness for His work. 
Verse 12 continues to say, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. That word qualify, He has qualified us, means He has made you competent. Let me tell you this. We don't possess enough morality to be qualified for salvation. We don't possess enough humanitarianism to qualify for our salvation. We don't possess enough philanthropic deeds to qualify us for our salvation. You know where you and I jointly stand in terms of our salvation? Incompetent, unqualified, incapable, unworthy, and undeserving apart from the grace of God who has made us competent to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. That inheritance are kingdom treasures. It is spiritual blessings. It is the knowledge of knowing that I, this wretched man that I was, and am continuing to work on not being, has the ability to contribute something to God's eternal kingdom. Not because of me, but because of Him. Thankfulness for His work. And this continues, that He has saved us. That's what this whole thing of being competent means. And so I'm going to continue in this passage, just as a reference here. He has saved us. Verse 13, if you read there. For He rescued us. He rescued us. We were like a kid in the water who couldn't swim. And we were on the verge of drowning. And here comes God. And He rescues us from the domain of darkness, the kingdom of darkness, and transfers us out of our drowning state to the kingdom of His beloved Son. He plucks us out of the water and He transfers us from the dominion, the kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of His beloved Son. As this continues, He has forgiven us, verse 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. So I want to ask you this question. When our life is really up against it, can we still be thankful that He has made us competent to be saved and that we have experienced His forgiveness for our life, that He has enabled us to know who He is, to be cleansed from our sin, to be transferred from the domain of darkness, by the way, that's hell, and transferred us to the kingdom of His Son, by the way, that's heaven? Can we not be thankful for that God has done that for us? Oh my goodness! And oh, by the way, there's not any circumstance that you and I are ever going to face that He is not sovereign over and Lord in. We often say, God, why are you doing this to me? Why did you let this happen? I thought you loved me. I thought you wanted what was best for me. Well, hard times are a test of our faith. And it's where the rubber meets the road. And it's where it's time to walk the walk and not just talk the talk. It's to trust in this God who has loved us enough to save us from our sin. To fill us with Himself and the person of the Holy Spirit. To strengthen us with the power of His might for steadfastness and patience. I don't know where you are in your life today. 
And I don't know where any of us are going to be in our lives tomorrow, but this is what I do know. The love of God won't change. The presence of God won't disappear. The hand of God has not been withdrawn. He's right there. Desiring that we would live a life that is equal weight to our salvation as we strive to live a life that is pleasing to Him. And to live a life that is pleasing to Him in the worst of life circumstances means that we love Him, we trust Him. We cling to Him, we cry out to Him. We remain obedient to Him. And He will show us the way. Would you pray with me please? Father, you are nothing but gracious to us. We are an imperfect people. Even after our salvation, it is so easy and so common for us to stray away. We doubt. We wonder. Sometimes we complain. Sometimes we get angry and we even yell back. But we know, Father, that you have not changed. You are the same yesterday, today, And tomorrow, I pray, Father, that we would grow in our faith in the great God that you are as we devour your word, as we are transformed by it, and as we choose to live a life that is worthy of it, as your Spirit enables us. God, we thank you for the way your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness covers all of our sin, all of our doubt, all of our failure. God, I pray that you would continually teach us how to focus, to fixate our minds on the love that has come from you as expressed to us through Jesus on the cross, dying in our place, paying the penalty for our sins so that we could become the children of God. May you find in the hearts of your children a desire to live a life that is worthy of our calling and pleasing to you in every respect. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and sing with me, please?